This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Luton smashed Brighton to climb out of the relegation zone. Two up after three minutes, a hat-trick for Elijah Adebayo and just a brilliantly comprehensive victory over new Barcelona Liverpool manager Roberto De Zerbi. Three wins in 16 for them. Arsenal dominate Forest at the city ground but take their time in getting through Nuno's stubborn defence. Jesus and Saka the difference makers. Aston Villa lose at home for the first time in almost a year. Newcastle didn't look that tired. There's Eze and Elise being brilliant for Palace and a fun goalless draw at Craven Cottage. There are more upsets at AFCON and South Korea squeezing through at the Asia Cup as Roberto Mancini wanders off before the penalty shootout is over. All that plus more stake, more nightclubs, your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendenning, welcome. Hi, Max. Nikki Bandini, hello. Morning. And Mark Langdon from the Racing Post, hello. Hi, Max. Uh, let's start at Kenilworth Road. Luton 4, Brighton nil. Kevin says, can anyone stop Luton's run to the Europa League? They're out of the relegation zone. A few good stats on this game. They were 2-0 up after 2 minutes and 17 seconds. Only one Premier League side has been 2-0 up earlier in a game. Leicester at Derby in 1998. Muzzy it and Emil Heskey, the scorers. Uh, they also went on to win 4-0. Arsenal took 2 minutes and 44 seconds to go 2-0 up at St. James's Park in that Czech Teote game. And uh, Elijah Adebayo, the 19th fastest goal in Premier League history. And the first Luton Town player to score a hat-trick in the top flight since Lars Elstrup against Norwich in 1990 and the first at Kenilworth Road since Mark Steen against Oxford United in 1988. Barry afterwards, Rob Edwards said in in an obvious question to Barry style, it was a good night, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a stunning performance that was. Yeah, Luton were absolutely outstanding. Um, they started incredibly aggressively, got two super early goals, and just blew Brighton away. And, and Brighton tend to, you know, when things go badly for them, uh, often away from home, they they really just go very badly indeed. But uh, they never laid a glove on Luton. I think Tom Lockyer came out and sort of did a, a lap of the ground or, you know, waved to the fans and, you know, here I am, good to be back. And I think that energised the fans and energised his teammates. And, you know, he, lo- he looked um, quite emotional at the incredible reception he got from the, the Kenilworth Road faithful. And, yeah, that was the beginning of, of a perfect night for Luton. They just won so comfortably against a very good team. Elijah Adebayo and Ross Barkley were both brilliant. Albert Sammy Lacongo, I thought, was excellent. Um, he's on loan from Arsenal, isn't he? And just a perfect night for Luton. Um, a stunning performance. And Roberto De Zerbi said afterwards, we played badly, not one player played well. We must remember this day. And I <laughs> I imagine uh, Luton fans will remember the day too for, for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, that bio, uh, Mark, is exactly the centre forward they need, isn't it? And, and I think we... When they came up and not a lot of us had watched a lot of Luton, but when we watched the playoff games and we thought, hang on, Adebayo and Morris could really, they could really hurt teams. And maybe it's taken them a bit of time, but it really felt like they just did not let up all game. Yeah, and Adebayo didn't start 
fantastically well. And I remember there was one chance he missed. It was on the TV game. I think it might have even been against Tottenham where the ball came across. Oh, yes, he uh, sat on it, didn't uh, he? Yeah, <laughs> um, when, he, when he, he really should have scored. And I think at that sort of moment, um, there was some mocking and kind of, you know, just not good enough um, at this level. And, um, you know, a fair amount of patronising kind of, um, I suppose, comments towards Luton about how they try hard, but they're just never going to have the quality um, to compete in the division. But it, in more recent weeks, they have actually you know, looked a far more complete Premier League team. And you've got Adebayo and Morris that provide a, a test that you don't get from a lot of other Premier League sides. You know, but Brighton don't face that um, physical nature, um, you know, every single week. But I um, also agree um, with Barry about, you know, Barkley has been mentioned a few times um, on on the Football Weekly about how much he's improved the team. But also Lukonga um, alongside him has definitely made a difference. And they've now got two players in central midfield that can dictate play um, to a certain extent and then provide more quality opportunities for Morris and Adebayo and then out wide uh, Doty and Ogbeni, um, you know, in different ways, Doty with the crossing, Ogbeni just at that pace and, and trickery is um, difficult to counter and they've given themselves a real opportunity of staying up. I, I'm sort of having a look at their fixture list because that I'm sure they hadn't played many of the big teams away from home and they've only um in terms of the top seven as it stands they've only been to one of those um but the, the sort of counterpart of that is that at home they've still got to play Brentford Nottingham Forest Everton Sheffield United Fulham and Bournemouth and th- th- there is an opportunity now for Rob Edwards decide to stay up um yeah th- there really is yeah, and actually so much, Nicky, was made at the start of the season about Kenilworth Road. Some of it quite patronising, some of it quite sort of loving, and it's sometimes hard to get the balance between the two. And and actually the, the home and away form is pretty similar, but there is something about that place when it's rocking, I, I guess because most Premier League grounds just don't look like that, that, that I don't know, it gives me enormous pleasure. I know, there's something, isn't there, I think, in, in like the English football psyche about stadiums that feel close, that are on top of you and have that sort of slightly older vibe to them I was the line about patronising is such a fine one isn't it because I was thinking this um, actually with the I think it was just the last podcast you guys did um, when you talk about Mason United and about players who maybe sort of are players still telling themselves I've got the opportunity to to go somewhere else and of course Adebayo is only 26 I think but when you think um, this sort of earlier chapter of his career and then being at Warsaw even not that long ago and 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 now here he is and 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 playing like this in the Premier League it's it's a real sort of reminder of how quickly your fortunes can change I mean nothing quicker than Luton's form in this season with what two wins on the verge of Christmas and then 10 points now in the last five games extraordinary yeah and they have also run quite a few of the big teams close but without getting any you know so it would give them a half decent chance of staying up and I, I would imagine that Rob Edwards would, would get manager of the season for keeping them up and would that be patronising? Probably not. Yeah. Adebayo said, look, throughout my whole career you dream of nights like this playing non-league for many of us who've been on such a journey we thrive and wish for nights like this. Ogbene is one of your own Baz, isn't it? I was reading about him. Played Gaelic football till he was 18. 
moved from Nigeria when he was eight and his dad got a job in Ireland and one in Florida and went, oh, I'll move to Ireland. And so, and I think he's, I think he's a really tremendous footballer actually. Like, and, and as Mark said, like just great pace, but, but tricky as well. And with him and Doughty, they've just got a lovely shape about them. Yeah, wise decision to move Diogbenes moving to to Ireland. Um, I didn't know he played Gaelic football, but he's certainly fast enough and strong enough to be a good Gaelic footballer. Um, he played for Nemo Rangers. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. If they're good, I don't know. I uh, yeah. Well, I've heard of them, so. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, and they signed him from Rotherham, and I think people were a bit sceptical if he'd be good enough to, to play in the Premier League. Uh, he was hugely popular at Rotherham. I mean, it's indicative of Luton's transfer policy. You know, people raised eyebrows when they brought in uh, Barkley and Andros Townsend, but they've proved inspired signings, and the rest of the team, you know, there's no... Glam, big money signings there, are there? Mm. Interesting on Deserby, Nicky. I mean, at the same time that he's being, um, you know, linked with Liverpool and Barcelona, and we get questions like, is Deserby being seduced by the bright lights of Merseyside? We also get questions like from Suddy saying, should he be under pressure? Three wins in the league in the last 16. Yeah, it's, it, I was thinking on this because it's almost like Brighton and Luton have mirrored each other in some way of course because Brighton did beat Luton 4-1 at the beginning of the season but also because Brighton had this collection of wins at the start of the season five in the the last six and then have stopped winning while Luton have not won for a long time and then started winning Uh, there's sort of these odd um, mirroring going on but does there to be and I should say with Brighton by the way that's that's just the Premier League games you look at things in the bigger picture actually all the cup results they've had it's a lot of games and and I think that's a big part of the picture here is they've they've put energies into into playing cross multiple competitions and they have got a lot of wins in in the cups um but I I I do think this is for those of us who've been following Desertby since he was in Italy since Sassuolo it it's familiar um his teams always had this sort of potential for brilliance about them but also a a lack of a change up a lack of a different way of playing and so when it doesn't work and it unravels and you're still trying to play out from the back and you're still trying to play this aggressive risk-taking football and it's not working it can it can really come apart in very dramatic ways and I think if you wanted to take that a step further you could say that maybe he's too predictable and I think that's criticism to be kept within its context they still think overall he does a, a brilliant job but I think that these being the flaws that you find these being the nits that you pick is kind of the story of his career mm. when it unravels does it has he got the skill to re-ravel it or not well, I, <laughs> I I think to some extent he's he's always tended to move on I mean he hasn't stayed anywhere so so long in his career and and he's moved upwards most of the time and he's done very well. And I, I sort of want to keep my criticisms within sensible boundaries for that reason. Yeah. But I, I, I do think it's valid when you're talking about a job like the Liverpool job to look at these things and go, has he actually got the, the nuance has, or at least has he demonstrated the nuance because everyone can change and develop through their career that, that that sort of job might require. Mm. That's interesting actually, Mark, isn't it? With the, the kind of timing of jobs, that you know he could go on a terrible run now and just suddenly that would automatically or not automatically but it would be much harder for either Liverpool or Barcelona to make that call 
even though obviously you do you do your due diligence and it shouldn't be based on the last eight games shouldn't but i've and uh, you know a well-run club won't base it on um you know a a period of matches they'll base on what they think that manager can do um you know with the resources that they'll have at the sort of the, the, the club they're potentially going to i think with supporters it seems to count more that um, you know, Javi Alonso, for instance, when he's in the um, sort of being spoken about for the Liverpool job, seems to be timing his run to absolute perfection. If Leverkusen were kind of fifth in the Bundesliga, it might not be, um, you know, such a hot um, topic of debate. But just getting back, you know, to deserving Brighton, I mean, they are still eighth in the Premier League. They're above Manchester United, they're above Chelsea, and they are Brighton. So I, I find the criticism, you know, I wouldn't go overboard with it um what i would say is that if you do go on to manage a liverpool you know you can when he's bright manager you can gloss over a 4-0 defeat and just oh you know it's one of them things they'll be okay at liverpool you know we would be talking about that for a week um that they've been stuffed 4-0 somewhere and um that then becomes a very different job um i, I think but overall brighton have had a lot of injuries this season they're still going strong in two cups they're um, you know ahead of more illustrious names in the Premier League as well. So um, you know over the season they're doing okay. I think his points per game are more or less the same this season as last season. Is the other thing like it's not like we're sort of if you take a step back from it, looking at two different things. It's just that the recent trend because the season started so well feels worse. But again, even in recent times, you can point to beating Marseille, beating Ajax, beating Tottenham. Like they're, they're not awful all of a sudden. But I think. What I would say is definitely Deserbi, as long as I've been observing him, has had this capacity for an awful game. And this was an awful game. Yeah. I, as we discussed, I think before, your best way to do a season is to have all your results laid out and lose <laughs> all of the games, then draw and then just win your last however many. And everyone just thinks you're a miracle worker. Uh, let's go to the city ground. Um, Nothing for us. One, Arsenal two. But as Arsenal dominated this game totally, didn't they? And, and yet, Around the hour, I mean, just before Jesus scored, you started thinking, oh, this could be another one where they just can't score. Yeah, they dominated. I didn't think they played particularly well in the first half. And it did look like one of those games where they might arsenal things up, just trying to be a bit too clever and too intricate with their passing and whatnot. A little like City against Spurs, actually, at the weekend, I thought, you know, they were kind of... While they dominated, they didn't actually give Vicario and the Spurs goal a huge amount to do. But they won the game, and it was squeaky bum time a bit towards the end after Awani scored the goal, and then Alexander Zinchenko and Ben White had a bit of handbags at the final whistle, uh, having a frank exchange of views over who was at fault for the goal. And uh, I think David Rea had to make a save after that, but... They got the three points. It was a crucial three points ahead of their game against Liverpool on Sunday. But I also think it shows why they probably won't win the league and will sort of... I think Villa will drop away, then Arsenal will drop away. I think it will end up being Liverpool and Man City duking it out, if that. Because, yeah, it was a good win, but not a hugely convincing one Nikki? It is tricky because I sort of want to fall in both camps on it sometimes uh, I think whenever we talk about Arsenal sort of defensive frailty you sort of want to remind everyone there's one team in the yeah. league that's conceded fewer goals than Arsenal it's Liverpool and that's it 
Uh, so it's not like there's some incredibly fragile uh, side defensively, but it, it somehow does feel a little bit more like that. And and I, I certainly felt like it at the end of the game, a game which should never have really been allowed to get back in the balance was was hanging in the balance again. Um, I think that agree sort of with Baz broadly about the pattern of the game in the first half wasn't particularly sort of exciting or, or feeling like the, there was some inevitable breakthrough coming. But, but Forrest were p- parking the bus in, in the most sort of insistent fashion. It was eight players in the box most of the time. And it is hard to unpick that. And I think it speaks to the positives for Arsenal that actually they have been so good at using things like set pieces to to break through situations like that. And yes, Matt Turner makes an absolute clanger on uh, on Jesus's first goal, but it does come from a throw, and it is that planning and and sharp thinking at those at those um, opportunities that has allowed Arsenal to make breakthroughs in games like this. So I think there's still more positive than negative in there because it feels like it's trending the other way, but I. I do unfortunately tend to agree with Baz. I'm I'm not sure I think Arsenal quite have whatever the magic is that's going to get them past Liverpool and City this season. Mm. Both those goals were defensively soft, Mark. But as I was watching that game, I was just thinking, sometimes we we don't appreciate just how tiring it must be to concentrate if you have to defend for the whole game because both of them are just switching off. That throw in, they are, they just switch off and then it's a goal before they can... I mean, actually, we all had a time to blink quite a lot of times. <laughs> switched off for a long time. You have a short nap and then Jesus was in. Yeah, and you know, Nottingham Forest, particularly in the first half, I mean, barely put a pass together. I mean, there was one stat that came up um, sort of, I think it's sort of midway through that first half where they'd managed one pass in the final third um, and Arsenal were <laughs> uh, about 100 um, of those. And, yeah, eventually that will take it its toll, I, I think, because you do have to um, stay switched on for 90 minutes and that is tiring. But then when the defenders do switch off from that throwing, I mean, you should be expecting a Premier League goalkeeper to save that first shot. I mean, he shouldn't be that tired that um, the ball goes through his legs the way that it did. And it's not the first mistake that Turner has made in recent weeks. And I've seen today that Forrest are looking for a new goalkeeper to bring in. Um, you know, for, for the rest of the season, and that makes sense. I, I think that the you know Turner's made more than enough errors now that um, somebody else needs to have a go. Uh, overall, though, I will disagree with Barry and Nicky. I, I was watching that game, and I, I thought Arsenal were completely fine and were going to easy to say now. But I, I was, I was confident and comfortable that they would make the breakthrough. I thought that they played more aggressive than I've seen them um, maybe in some away games. And um, I, I I didn't get that sort of sense of, of panic. I, I thought this was a perfectly acceptable um, away performance from Arsenal and uh, was easy enough despite the that, that late goal gave a, a different kind of feeling for the last couple of minutes. But what Gabriel Jesus gives you in those wide areas, you know, if he wasn't playing and they did go for an Ivan Tony type striker, then I think actually maybe some of their other football wouldn't work as well and the team might break down in, in other areas. So I think once they've committed to playing this way, it is about just being patient and waiting for those those moments to come and, and not shooting every time somebody in the crowd demands that you shoot and, you know, <laughs> just, just waiting for the right moments. And um, yeah, I, I like I said, I, I thought that Arsenal played uh, well enough in, in that game, certainly better than sort of like the Fulham match um, as an example. Yeah, I, 
Um, I, I was surprised they were at half time on, on Twitter. They were um, that there was a fair bit of criticism for Arsenal, and I was struggling to understand that at the time. I mean, how could you not want Gabriel Jesus in the lineup, knowing that when he scores, he's literally never lost a Premier League game? I think it's fifty nine games now. Wow, which is uh, pretty bonkers. Again, like this sort of thing about Arsenal slowing down. Obviously, he had a bad end to the the year for sure. But they did beat Palace 5-0 before this. I think sometimes there's sort of some some hyperbole that that, that comes in with the I don't know, with the, the criticism that that the performances aren't as sharp as because there's a memory of last season, how close they came to winning the title. Um and I think perhaps it has felt like this season's performances have never quite sparkled like they did last season. But overall the the football's still been very, very good. It's also worth saying that you're talking about a Nottingham Forest team that under Nuno Espirito Santo has already beaten Manchester United, has uh, earlier this season beat Villa here with a very similar percentage of, of possession, by the way. I think they had about 25% possession in the game. That, that They are at the wrong end of the table, but they, they sort of know how to play these games and, and have shown they can get results in them. So the idea that um, it should have been easy somehow, I think, is a little bit um, a little bit off. You know how, is it Mario Goetz has just scored the winning goal in the World Cup final too early in his career? It was like, you can't do that then. It was Goetz, wasn't it, in 2014? I wonder about, about Gonzalo Montiel, right? Like, he did, he scored the winning penalty in the World Cup final, right, for Argentina. So obviously every kick he does is compared to that kick. And like that sort of non-pass clearance to set up the second goal for Arsenal. Do you just think, if you do score the winning goal, in the penalty shootout in the World Cup final, you should just go, I just, I can't really play again. Because like, <laughs> everything I do, like the last time we talked about him when he was coming on in the freezing cold in Blackpool, it's like nothing he can do can ever reach that moment. Like, how, do you, how do you motivate yourself when that is, your, that is your pinnacle and now you're just mishitting a clearance to, I can't remember which Arsenal player got the ball, but, you know. Well, Julian Alvarez and Alexis McAllister seem to be, you know, motivating True. themselves pretty well. But they, but, but they weren't the winning penalty. Is it different? I mean, they say in, in you know, stand-up comedians, if, if it's going well, get off the stage. If it's going badly, get off the stage. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, maybe Montiel should have just retired after scoring that penalty. Yeah. Um, Arteta upset with the rumours suggesting he was going to leave uh, Arsenal and go to Barcelona seems it does seem unlikely Nicky doesn't it just the timing a bit like Posta Coglu it seems unlikely even though he was a Liverpool fan you could see he would fit there really well feels like Arteta and also like Arsenal are a well-run club and Barcelona are a complete basket case but it is still Barcelona yeah I'm not sure the, the comparison you you just made quite holds because I think at least in the Posta Coglu case not there aren't reasons to to, to to push against that as well but is I think you could look at that and reasonably say, okay, but I'm moving to a club with better resources that's giving me a chance to to win things perhaps sooner. Um, I, I'm not sure that Barcelona would feel like that now. I mean, given all the endless financial levers we've been pulling summer after summer to try and keep the club from from going bankrupt, frankly, and uh, and and the distance between them and the teams at the top of La Liga right now, I don't see how that would be more appealing than the third year of this project that you've talked about last November, he was talking about it being the state phase three of his five phase plan that he discussed with ownership, which we never quite got to hear what all five of these phases are, but 
it it would seem a very um, odd choice for any reason other than obviously emotional attachment to Barcelona and, and his history there. But I think that given that there's also emotional attachment attachment to, to Arsenal and history there, and given that he's got, as far as you can see from the outside, it feels like the club is giving him everything that he wants. He's giving him the resources he wants. It's giving him the things that he asks for. It's spending the money he wants in the transfer market, willing to put 100 million into a player like Declan Rice. I think that it, it would feel like a, a counterintuitive move. All right, that'll do for part one. Uh, part two will begin at Villa Park. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Now, the share show, get ready to turn back time in this outrageous new musical. <laughs> 35 pop hits, one pop goddess is no longer playing at the Birmingham Hippodrome, but it was the share show at Villa Park last night, Barry. That is tremendous work. Man. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Max, I'm, you, I'm, when he scored the second goal, I thought you could have gone for share again, though. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's true. I mean, I did, I did, I got to the stage when I was reading TripAdvisor reviews for Cher's last concert in Birmingham. <laughs> and I thought maybe this has gone too far now. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> tell me about what you thought about the game, Baz. Yeah, it was a good game, actually. Um, so you had Villa, who got trashed by Newcastle on the opening day of the season, but we're 14 points ahead of them going into this game. And uh, Newcastle, who's, uh, you know, and they, their home record, they haven't lost at home in the league for almost a year. I think it's 346 days, uh, which is almost a year, give or take 19 days, I think. And... Uh, Live maths. I like how the live maths made you just switch off for a second. You did a sum. Well, I'm just so bad at arithmetic that um, I I presumed I was wrong. So I was. Anyway, sorry, I'm waffling. Okay. Uh, So Villa, brilliant home record. Newcastle, dreadful away record. I think this is only their second uh, away win in the league this season. And Newcastle pretty much obliterated them, I think. Scored two goals from corners. Villa were playing a very high line that, you know, Newcastle were constantly getting in behind them. And that the, the third goal was Anthony Gordon, who was outstanding again for Newcastle, slid the ball down in behind for uh, Almiron, whose cross was converted by Jacob Murphy. And so it was more or less game over. But uh, Leon Bailey, who couldn't start because he had a back injury I think he was sent on and he was excellent for Villa when he came on but it was then Eddie Howe showed his mettle by bringing on Tino Livermento to to stop him getting crosses into the box uh, I thought it was a very accomplished performance by Newcastle Villa kind of targeted Lewis Miley in midfield tried to bully him a bit and that didn't work and yeah it was not entirely unexpected result even though Villa's home form is so good and Newcastle is so bad yeah I sort of reminder Nicky that the there's quite a lot of the season left and we make big judgments about well Villa are you know and they were in the title race I guess they still are right they're still close but like these two teams could easily finish Newcastle could finish above Villa with a with not an unlikely set of results you know and and and, and we're occasionally just sort of I guess that's the nature of the beast right you you look at what's just happened and talk about it 
Yeah, I, I saw Ellen this morning asking if Arsenal were in the title race. And I was thinking, well, they're, they're two points off top, so I think they're in the race. I don't mean they're <laughs> going to win the race, but like no. they're in the race. And 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 Villa, it's, I suppose it's a little bit wider. It's it's you know if Liverpool were to win the game in hand, it becomes a an eight point gap. But I think you can still say, yeah, with with it, uh, sixteen games left, that's in the race. Doesn't again doesn't mean you think they're the favourites, um, but it was interesting listening to Unai Emery's um, uh, comments after the the game and sort of talking about this is normal. You, you win seventeen, well, you don't lose seventeen games at home. You're going to, you're going to lose one eventually. This is normal. It's football. It happens, and trying to, to to handle it in that way. And I think it was certainly a game that it's it's odd because it could have finished four one quite easily, but it didn't feel like they were getting hammered in quite the way that the scoreline suggested. They did play some good football in this game. It also could have got it back to 3-2, to a narrow, narrowly disallowed goal. Um, but it felt like they, perhaps after conceding that first goal, just got a little bit too um, a little bit too loose and a little bit too um, trying to... F- too, too rushed trying to fix things, frankly, and allowing Newcastle to to play that that fast-breaking running style that, that suits them really well. And, and as Baz said, Anthony Gordon was sensational in this game I think he's really becoming something quite special um but I I think it's possible to to look at this result and go that was a surprise didn't expect them to to be 3-0 down like they were in the game but I don't think it necessarily means that all the wheels have come off Villa all at once on Anthony Gordon Mark Jamie says um with Rashford out of form brackets also you know in in nightclubs uh, every single day of the week. Um, uh, Grealish struggling with injuries and few English left-wingers shining this season. Is Anthony Gordon on the plane? Seems like a Gareth player with him excelling at under-21s, yet yeah, he's not had a chance. Genuinely think he could be massive at the Euros. He's not on the plane. I think he's he's in the discussion for a ticket um, at, at the moment. And actually, when he went up front, he looked a, a threat there as well as off of the left wing. I think he's formed this season would uh, warrant an England call-up. There's only one sort of batch of matches left, isn't there, in in March? And you were talking about uh, managers' time in their run. I think it's also an important aspect when sort of players, um, you know, really time their run. The counter-argument is that Gareth Southgate seems to have a very settled squad and you need to be special or in a position where they're really weak um, to kind of force your way in because he has trusted um, some of them players that you've mentioned, you know, before, and he hasn't been distracted, you know, by club form, as we've seen with Maguire and, you know, Henderson moving to Saudi Arabia didn't impact his position in the squad. So the fact he hasn't been in yet would, I think, count against him just because of the way that Southgate sort of seems to select his squad. But, I'd like to see him have a go um, because he is a threat and he was uh, unplayable, maybe a bit strong, but certainly Matty Cash had a difficult evening against him on that left-hand side. I do think, though, that the it's about the first time in about four or five months that somebody's actually exploited that Aston Villa high line. And it looks very easy when I watch it on TV. Just think, just be patient with your run. Um, start from deep and wide, and then just as the ball's passed, you know, start on the halfway line, and you'll you'll beat the the Villa defence. And nobody seems to have uh, been able to, to do it. But Newcastle had done that uh, back on the opening weekend of the season, and even though the goals didn't sort of always come from that area, it was a constant threat that they were able to sort of penetrate that high line better than most teams have done so far this season. 
I, I think Anthony Gordon's a really interesting one for England because as as Mark said, Southgate's a very settled squad and he has a lot of options in that area of the pitch, right? England are not short of of, of players who can fill those roles. But there was a, a piece on um on, on TNT Sport in the UK the other day and uh, him being interviewed by Rio Ferdinand. I just thought it was really striking with, with Gordon because you can see certain attributes about him. He's very effective at being direct. He's got that pace to him. He's got obviously a, a shot on him and, and I think he's he's got all the sort of physical stuff. But I, listening to him just came across as really sort of intelligent footballer as well. And they were highlighting a goal he scored against Manchester United and and noticing the fullback sort of dropping his arms the second before he makes a run and saying, yeah, I, I saw that. I, as soon as I saw his body language change, I thought, well, he's, he's switched off for that second and that's the moment to make that run. I, I think he's he's really, whether it's this um, this Euro cycle or not, I think he's he's really sort of got plenty of, of space to keep going on this upward trajectory he's on right now. Uh, Nigel says, where does Moreno's crash into the post rank on the Phil Babb scale, um, uh, Barry? I mean, it, it did look really sore. And they just every replay was just getting nearer and nearer. And you were just like, oh, just spare the guy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what to say, really. I, I think Phil Babb is adamant that his wasn't as painful as it looked. But uh, if you're sliding in either side of the post, one leg either side of the post, it's it's not. It's a scene we don't want to see, Max. Yeah, you're right. It's it's not one of those things. It's a you know often when misfortune befalls someone, you think, oh, it's funny because it's happened to someone else. But nah, I, mm. I don't want I, to see that happen. It's to a anyone. football going in, fine. A post, not fine. That's where I would draw the line. Uh, to Selhurst Park, Crystal Palace three, Sheffield United two. Eberitzieze and and Michael Elise. I mean, we've spoken about how rarely. Mark, Roy has been able to start these two. And clearly, when you get to start both, both of them, that's really quite useful. That It's hard to pick which was the best goal out of this three. I liked Eze's second goal um, and, and Palace's second one, maybe the, the best of the lot. But yeah, yeah um, they are uh, the, the two players that take Palace from being a dour watch to a really exciting one. And you wonder how much longer they'll uh, Palace would be able to keep them um, because their their talents, I think, are deserving of playing in more adventurous teams and ones that are sort of fighting maybe at the other end of the table. But it's great to you know for, for Palace to have those two um, available. Eze's the first goal, uh, Gervich. Gervich is made to look quite silly um, because yeah. he sort of runs to the back post and, and Eze gets uh, gets to it um, before him. But it's still a great ball in from Elise. The, the commentary feed I watched uh, maybe overplayed Elise's um, part in the second goal where he said he made it uh, for Eze because Eze had a fair bit to do uh, when he picked it up outside the area um, and, and sort of smashed it in. But yeah, I mean, th- th- those two players are on a different level to everything else that the Palace have got. And, you know, Roy Hodgson's under pressure and the, the, the Palace fans are, are wanting something different. But actually, when those two are playing, they, they can provide that that sort of difference for them, don't they? Yeah, I, it's fascinating to see where their careers go, Nicky. I mean, you wonder if they look at Wilf Zaha and think... He went too early and came back, and then he didn't, and then he stayed too long. Like when do you, when do you time your jump? And I, and I'm guilty. I think probably like a lot of people are sort of clumping them together. I, I can't work out if one is discernibly better than the other. I don't know if I see enough of Crystal Palace to make a value judgment on which of these two stars is the star. 
Yeah, just say quickly, by the way, Ben Barrett and Diaz's goal for Sheffield United was also a, a cracker. This game was just absolutely, every oh, absolutely. goal was, was brilliant. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I think it's not necessarily about when you go, but where you go, Max. I think that so much of football, I think so, so much of football that that goes gets underestimated is finding yourself with the right coach in the right situation at the right time. I think there's um, obviously talent and application are the biggest defining factors in in where you're going to go in your career. But I do think there's um, plenty of careers that you see made or or broken by being, again, in the right place at the right time. And um, I don't know why this is the example that's come to my mind, but Ciro Immobile goes to Germany, has a terrible time, goes to Spain, has a terrible time, comes back to Italy. And you think, is this player's career drifting nowhere in his in his mid to late 20s? And he finds Simone Inzaghi, who has the, the, the key to unlock it all. And suddenly he's winning the Capo Canoniere, he said he has top scorer. Uh, I think so much of, of of football comes down to these small decisions, well, I suppose big decisions, but but pivotal decisions in a player's career about where they go. And I don't think that's necessarily about your age. I think it's just about finding the right fit. I, I'm sure Palace fans don't want to hear the discussion no. of their brilliant game being about just where their two best players are going to head off to next. No, I mean, I, that, I'm just, Palace fans are realistic enough. Well... Well, Roy Hodgson said afterwards that, you know, it is up to us to build a better team so that we can try to keep them. But, you know, they will inevitably move on at some stage, one imagines. But Palace have brought in Daniel Munoz, uh, Colombian right back, and are on the verge of signing Blackburn's Adam Wharton, who is a player I know nothing about, but I people seem to rate him very highly. I think he's somebody that will set the tempo for them in midfield, kind of get on the ball and um, you know look to dictate play once he gets sort of adjusted into the team, which is feels like something maybe that Crystal Palace haven't got at the moment. But just looking at the stats, um, Elise and Eze have started four Premier League games together um, this season. And in that period, they've scored all eight of Crystal Palace's goals when they've been um, sort of, you know, in, in starting in those games. And, um, you know, they, they've beaten Brentford and Sheffield United in those home games. And, you know, they lost at Luton, but as we know now, there's no disgrace in getting turned over um, at Kenilworth Road. And even the Chelsea game was relatively competitive. So, um, yeah, I, I think it is clearly important. But what Palace have shown is actually they can, they're very good at shopping in the EFL and able to develop those players. And, um, you know, maybe they just need to sort of stick to that plan um, because it has worked for them. Gay would be. Um, another one as well. So they are good recruiters in, in finding players from the EFL and giving them a platform. But I do think when you do that, you kind of have to accept that you maybe are a stepping stone club. Um, and that one of the reasons maybe you get the best EFL players is because eventually you'll kind of sell them on uh, when that player feels like they've outgrown Crystal Palace. You were right to mention the the, the Barrington Diaz goal, Nicky. Not just because of the finish, which was great, but the pass to him. I think it was McAtee. I'm not sure. I may be doing someone else a disservice. Gustavo Hamer, I think. Oh, is it Gustavo Hamer? Yeah. I mean, the way he that sort of cutting across the ball. It's just the most beautiful professional footballer kick I think you can have. It was just so so delightful, wasn't it? Um, I, I wonder if you think what you said that you were totally right, Barry, on the last pod to criticise Chris Wilder for what he said about the referee. But I did think, I think they have got slightly better under him compared to Paul Hagenbottom. Uh, 
I'm not sure there is. Maybe they have, but the results don't speak to that improvement. I mean, they went away from home. They scored two good goals and they still lost. Uh, obviously, it was the Eze and Elise show and there's not much you can do about that. But looking at them, James McAtee is a class act and he's pretty much the only class act they have. And that that's the kind of game they sort of need to... They, they were arguably unlucky not to get a point because Ahmed Hodzic... Um, pumped a header off the bar late doors and if that had gone in they'd have got a point and they probably deserved a point but uh, they weren't dreadful in this but as in Elise they were pretty much unplayable uh, Michael says now that Everton are in the relegation zone again do they need to look at hiring Sean Dyche to replace Sean Dyche um, this was the, this was a good nil-nil I thought Mark so many chances by the end it, it, it seemed to me the last footage I saw of this game was just Ben Godfrey repeatedly shooting from a yard and it just hitting his own player, the opposition player, everything and not going in. It was sort of, it, but it, there were so many chances in this game. Yeah, uh, there were 46 shots, um, 10 on target. Uh, I felt like the woodwork was being rattled every few minutes as well. And um, yet it finished nil-nil, which maybe um, points to a, a problem um, for, for both teams in, in terms of their, their forward line, particularly Everton. There was that moment, wasn't it, at the end where Beto, I think, could have, have nicked it and it would have been a massive uh, win. I, I mean, Fulham dominated the ball um, and, and sort of eventually the shot count, but it, it felt like a really chaotic game and a difficult one to weigh up kind of, um, you know, whether it was a fair result. And I suppose if you're not sure if it was a fair result, maybe the draw is the fair result. I only saw a highlights package of this game uh, and it looked mad. Just like a, <laughs> the ball pinballing around the place constantly. That goal that didn't quite cross the line where I think it was Anthony Robinson hooked it out. Robinson ham, well, um, was accused by the Everton players of handballing it. He was the ham, he was the one that handballed it, it when hand. it came yeah. off the bar. Came off the bar, hit, the, hit his hand. It was going over the line and then someone else hooked it clear. I don't know if that, I don't think it didn't feel like a penalty to me. It did to Sean. No, Dyche. it didn't. But that was kind of indicative of the game as a whole. Just that, that chaos. Yeah, both teams could have won it. Fulham probably better, and that that chance by Beto at the end was oh, got to score that. But Jordan Pickford had a very good game as well. He was um, super shouty. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's. I think the commentator I saw, yes. I think it was Tony Gale, and and I don't know, it just sort of made this comment went, oh, there's Pickford just yelling at someone after he's made a save. It's <laughs> just sort of like classic Pickford. He's just, that's what he has to do. A bit like, you know, a great moment in football when a keeper saves a penalty and it goes out for a corner and everyone's trying to celebrate with him and all he wants to do is just beat the shit out of all of them. The one thing I'd say, obviously, so many chances, neither team score, but Everton are, are deep in the mire and Dominic Calvert-Lewin now hasn't scored in... He's passed 16 appearances, which is, is a worrying goal drought. We'll be back in a second. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Ollie says, has there been a more enjoyable tournament ever than AFCON 2023? Dramatic comeback and win for the host, the Ivory Coast, over Senegal on Monday. They came back from a goal down, uh, thanks to a Frank Kessie penalty. Then they went to win in a shootout. Uh, Morocco fell short against 
uh, South Africa. Um, Daniel Story, amongst others, tweeting that the 2023 quarter finalists are all completely different to the 2021 quarter finalists. It was totally every single nation replaced by another unprecedented in major tournament history. The top five FIFA ranked sides are all out, uh, which means we have Nigeria, Angola, DR Congo, Guinea, Mali, Ivory Coast, and Cape Verde, South Africa in the quarterfinals. We're going to do a, we're going to do another AFCON pod next week, I think. Uh, John says, after sacking their manager halfway through the championship, does Barry think Ivory Coast are going to go full Offaly 98 and win AFCON? Sheep in a heap, Arise Sejourie <laughs> playing injured up front, scoring the winner, a la Brian Wheelerhan. Um, and this is quite a niche question, John, for, for, for you, Barry. Um, it would be fun if they did. Uh, yes, he's he's referencing the Offaly hurling team who... Uh, were heavily criticised by their manager halfway through the season. He described them as sheep in a heap. And uh, he ended up getting the bullet. A fellow from Galway was drafted in as his replacement. Offaly went on to win the All-Ireland in pretty dramatic uh, circumstances. And uh, their mid, quite charismatic uh, midfielder, Johnny Pilkington, a fellow from Burr, who I know well, uh, said afterwards, we're, we're not such a bad flock after all. Uh, as a bit of a barb towards the uh, Babs Keating, the former manager. But I have no problem with the with Afcon being on while the regular season has been played. But it's really annoying that you can't really give it your full attention, and you're kind of dipping in and out and catching up with highlights and whatnot. I haven't I've seen a few full games. Some of them are excellent. Uh, I'm fully behind Cape Verde because they have a, a Dubliner playing for them. I, I'm guessing he's probably the first Irish man to play in AFCON. I'll happily stand corrected if I'm wrong. But he was born and reared in Crumlin in Dublin to a, a dad who's from Cape Verde and moved to Ireland for love. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's been marvellous. Um, Mark, I don't know. I sometimes feel guilty that I'm watching from a sort of Tottenham Hotspur perspective. So then, you know, Senegal go out, so Papsar is back. And then Mali go through, so so Basuma isn't. And then I see that South Korea won on penalties. And oh, you think, oh, Hyungmin Son will be useful. And you think, God, what a terrible human. Because, you know, they're playing for their country. You could see what it meant to Son when that penalty shootout, when they won the penalty shootout. I'm exactly the same, Max. I mean, I was um, watching. I wanted Saar to score his penalty, and then wanted every other Senegal player to miss so that he could come back. And then <laughs> I felt so guilty when I saw his face at the end and the kind of the the despair. Um, and Max, as England fans, we've sort of felt that despair, and it's no different if it's a Afcon or, or European Championship, and how you know, whether he's even able to sort of lift himself to want to play again so soon afterwards. I saw a story this morning that Nicholas Jackson has flown straight to Merseyside to be part of the Chelsea squad for the, the game on um, Wednesday night, which I don't know, it, it doesn't feel like you would do that, you know, for European um, players, you know, as soon as you go out of a Euros, you don't want to be playing the next day or whatever. But I received, I mean, I, I'm not sure how many people are watching the Asian Cup in the UK, but I received three messages um, in, within about five seconds of South Korea equalising in the 99th minute um, <laughs> yesterday. Oh, how geez. gutted they, uh, they were that, um, you know, that there was a chance that Son um, would, would miss the Everton game. But again, you see how much it means to him um, to sort of lead 
South Korea into the next stage and all that he's given, um, you know, speaking here from a Spurs fan point of view, but all that he's given to Tottenham over the years, you know, a couple of games so that he can experience this. I mean, you know, it's the least we really should be doing is is cheering him on. Um, I don't know if that's just Ange sort of positivity rubbing off on me. There is still a part of me that, that wishes they would have gone out. But I, I was pleased that, um, you know, that it went wrong for, for Mancini um, with Saudi Arabia. I just... That whole move just made, you know, it made me feel uncomfortable, really, that um, he gave up that opportunity with Italy to take on this job. And, you know, the players have apparently hated him and it's not worked out for him at all. And then he storms off before um, the shootouts even finished. Um, yeah, it's a, a, a cautionary tale, maybe, um, for, what, for anyone what else did you that make wants of, to do that. What did you make of Mancini storming off? You sort of think, if you're mid-shootout... It's already late. Like you're not gonna, you know, this, you know, you might have missed the last bus already, Roberto. Yeah, he he says he thought it was already over. Um, is is the official line that he's given afterwards? <laughs> surely, surely he's seen a penalty shootout. Surely he's wondering what. Why are no players like all running towards the keeper and like jumping on them? <laughs> as happens in every single penalty shootout. I mean, when when you when you ask how I what I think seeing Roberto Mancini storm out early, I, I think well. It's Roberto Mancini, and I, I love him because he, he he did win a Euros with Italy, but he's also, throughout his managerial career and perhaps his playing career as well, had it in him to flounce sometimes. And um, at Inter, I remember sort of his last season, uh, the first time around, Maratti having to sort of talk him down from from quitting after a Champions League game uh, that that didn't go his way. It's 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 been. A, a pretty consistent theme of his, I would say, to to respond in not the best way to setbacks sometimes. Uh, Paul Watson's on the pod tomorrow, so uh, he, he's been obviously watching the Asia Cup ahead of everything else, so we will get his uh, hot takes on that and we'll do a full review of both tournaments next Tuesday ahead of the semi-finals of AFCON uh, and the semis of the Asia Cup. Um, Matt says, uh, Gigi Riva died recently, who was Italy's all-time leading scorer with 35 goals. Seems an oddly low tally compared to top scorers for other major footballing nations. Can Nicky explain this particular quirk of the Italian game? I'm, I'm not sure I can, to be honest. Um, I, 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 have, I haven't got um, all the numbers in front of me for different nations. I mean, Gary Lineker was England's all-time top scorer for a long time and he was in the 40s, wasn't he? I, I, I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure the numbers are so far out of step with other nations. I think some of our expectations are skewed by the odd individuals who come along and, and, and score absolutely prolifically. Um, I was going to say such as Ronaldo and I was thinking to myself, how many has Cristiano Ronaldo scored for Portugal? I don't know off the top of my head because I haven't researched this question before I got it. Um, I will tell you. I reckon it's around uh, 100. 128. There you go. Okay. So yes, there are, there are some individuals. I perhaps Italy hasn't had such a, a singular, um, a singular figure as that. I mean, I suppose if anything, when I was, Growing up, I would say Italy perhaps had the opposite situation where you had a lot of players in quick succession who perhaps ended up restricting how many opportunities they each got. Because when you've got Totti and Del Piero and Roberto Baggio's careers all overlapping, then they can't all be on the pitch at the same time with Christian Vieri, with Luca Toni coming in after that. There's, there's perhaps competition 
But um, I don't have a, a good answer for this. Maybe someone else has a much better answer than I do. Well, my, I, I vaguely recall, I think, for the first 35 years of my life, Italy resolutely refused to score more than one goal in any game <laughs> yeah. played. And that might have something to do with it. It seemed to be better at number 10s than number 9s for a while. So that might, you know, more creative than sort of that kind of out-and-out goal scorer. Um, Mark, you wanted to talk about the books that Ben Davis is reading. Uh, well, it, only because um, you know I mean, Rashford's done some great stuff off the pitch previously, but uh, you know he's obviously been in the media for the wrong reasons. Um, you know, in, in more recent days, getting private jets back from um, double nightclub evenings in Belfast, and yeah, Ben Davis was just on Instagram earlier on this week, um, just saying I've read. And all these books, and it was a list of um, books. And uh, DM me, and I'll send it on to you. Um, I hope they find a good home. And that just felt like a quite a nice um, thing to do, really. But did you did you DM him? Have you asked for Roy Smith's expected goals from Ben, as read by Ben Davis? I've already I've already read that one. So I'd, um, okay. no, I'd, um, I I was just a bit disappointed that the, the Guardian Football Weekly book wasn't on the um, wasn't on the pile. Maybe he hasn't finished it yet, <laughs> um, and it can be in the next batch. I was just pleased that none of Wilson's were in the (laughs) (laughs) Michael says, is it any coincidence that Mark is on this pod, given the talk of big meat on the last episode, Rob, on a scale of (laughs) one to ten? Just how much does Mark Langdon like steakhouses? Uh, Jay is the only person's opinion that matters when it comes to food. Please ask Langdon where the best steak he ever had was. I bet it's not the Angus Steakhouse. Uh, Mark, I don't know if you heard that we got offered a free Aberdeen Angus steak. I was, um, yeah, I, I did hear that. I, there is no coincidence that I demanded to be on the, uh, the next show <laughs> and forego any uh, appearance fee. Um, I, I'm not in um, the um, Angus um, steakhouses. I, on a Does scale anyone of... eat in the Angus steakhouses? Well, well, that's <laughs> the debate. Um, I think it all stemmed from my observation that while they always seem to be busy, I don't know a single person who's ever eaten in one or admitted to eating in one. They seem to be quite touristy. Yeah, on a scale of 1 to 10, it's a 10, uh, Max. You probably won't be surprised um, that, yeah, mm. steak features very heavily. Yes. Yeah, um, I don't know, are we, in the, the, are we in the business of giving shout-outs to, to restaurants? I mean, I have got a favourite. Um, well, of that's... course. Well, I mean, like m- most people know, but, you know, you, yes. I mean, if it's your favourite meat establishment, <laughs> okay, um, I believe in, it would be remiss of me not to ask what it is. In, uh, in uh, London's trendy Soho, uh, Sophie's does a uh, right. tremendous steak. Okay. Um, Jenny says, listening to Max and Barry on Football Weekly talking about Rashford clubbing at Thompson's Garage in Belfast. And I thought, I went there when it opened. And then they said, it's been a Belfast institution for 29 years and I'm officially dead. Um, (laughs) Sorry to make you feel old. Trevor says, hi, folks. As a native of Belfast, I never thought I'd hear Max and Barry discussing Thompson's Garage and Laveries. To put Max out of his misery, I can confirm Thompson's is not one of Belfast's most happening night spots. And we were all stunned Marcus Rashford was there. Um, uh, Gerard says, hey, Max, I think I speak on behalf of practically all of Belfast when I inform you that Thompson's nightclub is shite. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And lots of people messaged us to say uh, they were in nightclubs um, with footballers. Uh, Brian says, uh, my first year at Glasgow Uni in 2004, Wednesday night, student night, one pound a drink at Jumpin' Jacks. One week, there were two guys sat in the VIP area surveying, John Hartson and Craig Bellamy. Uh, Nick says, hi, all. I thought I'd share a couple of nightclub spots when I was a young lad going out in the Southampton area. 
First, I used to go to an indie club called Rhino with all my college friends. One night, former Southampton midfielder Chris Marsden came in seemingly by himself. <laughs> I'm not sure if it was system of a down blasting from the speakers or the fact we excitedly told the DJ he was there, who then announced it to the club over the PA. But oh, Marsden no. quickly left in a manner sim- similar to the, gran- to the Grandpa Simpsons gif. <laughs> <laughs> Another time we were out. Another he did. Although Chris Marsden, to be fair, did score an identical goal to John Barnes at the Maracanã once for Southampton. You should go and check it out. Another time he says we were out in Winchester and spotted Wayne Bridge. Not long after his move to Chelsea, we asked him how it was, and he replied, "Fucking shit." Um, I'm not sure if it got any better for him, to be honest. Uh, thanks for keeping me entertained and informed all the way out in California. Didn't you go to uh, China Whites with Liam Lawrence? I did, yes. I did a yeah. China once, once. Terribly not, uh, noisy. One of the Keos was there, but I couldn't tell you which one. Liam Lawrence and Robert Hooth. And me and Robert Hooth were both doing Movember, so it looked very much like the village people. <laughs> <laughs> when we were in there, I got the night bus home. Uh, Rowan says, uh, Hi Max, as you frequented Fez uh, in your early 20s, I did too. Not for many a year, but I did meet Ian Dowie and Freddie Flintoff on the Fez Club dance floor. Those were the days. And Hugo says, I am shocked. On the last pod to hear Barry's claim, he does not have one single grey hair. I'm calling cow excrement on this. Please can you have someone investigate this in person, I, as I can't because, like Max, I live in Melbourne, Australia. I I, I mean, the, the last time I saw you, Barry, was, what, late November? And yep. you didn't have a grey hair on you there? It's quite extraordinary. Yep. But it's quite feet. weird because when I get my hair cut and it drops down onto the, you know, the, the poncho they put around you, it all looks grey, but... Bef- on my head, it's it's brown, it's dark, wow. chestnut. So, so there's so much life in you. Yeah. When your hair is attached to you, it is jet black. But as soon, the minute it is cut off, it just <laughs> it just goes grey like yeah. that. It's like if I'm not if I'm not connected to Barry, it's not worth it's not worth living anymore. Wow, how extraordinary. Uh, anyway, that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, Max, I've just finished by saying I was once in a nightclub with Patrick Cliver. But uh, oh, yeah, good. thank you, Max. Okay, um, uh, Nikki, thank you. I have no celebrity nightclub spottings <laughs> to share with you. Sorry. Thanks. <laughs> so I think in many ways, I respect you more. Uh, Barry, thank you. Thanks, Max. Uh, Football Weekly is produced by Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Max Sons. This is The Guardian.